Last week, uh, just a quick synopsis from last week, we talked about John the Baptist, or we affectionately called him Johnny B., uh, and how he was giving witness to Jesus. He was acting authoritatively. He was preaching, calling people to repentance, which basically means to turn from their sins. He was baptizing people, preparing them for the coming one who was Jesus. But there were some religious leaders who uh, saw what he was doing, and they thought, ah, we better check this guy out. So they come to him, and they were, gonna, they were asking him questions, specifically the question, who are you? And based on the way that he was acting and, and teaching and what he was doing, they had three guesses. Either he was the Christ, the Messiah, who's Jesus, Elijah, or another prophet um, that was expected to come in the end times. And John the Baptist very comfortably, comfortably says, I'm not any of those individuals. And we find out very clearly that John the Baptist is a man who's sent from God. And so uh, he's doing what we would expect him to do. He's pointing people to God. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. And today we're going to look at a little bit more of Johnny B and explore what he is doing and what he is saying about Jesus. So we're going to be in chapter 1 of John. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. And this is one of our shorter passages that we'll have throughout the whole sermon series. It's about six verses. Uh, so I'm still going to take all my time, all right? All right, John 1, 29. The next day, he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, I thought it was a little interesting that last week when they were asking about, uh, the religious leaders were asking John the Baptist who he was. Uh, He said very clearly, I'm not these individuals, but then he was pretty ambiguous about who he was. He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, and didn't give this really straight or direct answer. But now, as he's talking about Jesus, we can see in some ways how he's getting very specific. He's getting pretty clear about who Jesus is. And so we see this right away in verse 29. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now if this was a movie, this would be the point in the movie where kind of the the music builds to a crescendo and the camera begins to zoom in on Jesus and the music becomes moody and profound in some way and the lights focus in on Jesus. This is kind of our introduction to him in some regard. But when we think about this title, this name given to Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, it seems a little interesting to us at some level because for us it might not be real clear. When we think about lambs in our culture, they oftentimes evoke 
cute and cuddly, or we're wearing them at some level, right? But I don't think this is what John the Baptist is going for in any way. In some ways, when I think about Lamb of God being utilized here, it kind of reminds me of how uh, the story of Noah's Ark is oftentimes plastered on the walls of church nurseries. It's like when you really think about that story, what happened in that story, in my mind, that's like one of the last stories I'm going to plaster on the walls of a kid's nursery, but for some reason, it's become the one that we plaster on the walls. I think about telling my kids that story before bed. It's like, talk about giving them nightmares, right? Like, we just don't read between the lines when we tell that one. So though this title, Lamb of God, may be confusing to us at some level, this title would have made much more sense to the Jewish people in the first century. So first of all, the phrase Lamb of God communicates possession, right? So it's God's Lamb is what we're talking about. But now we need to to ask and understand, what does it mean for God to have a Lamb? What's really going on with this? So according to Old Testament law, Lambs were offered as a burnt offering both morning and evening, every day, every day. Morning and evening, a lamb was offered as a burnt offering. Furthermore, they were offered on the first day of every month. And then the Jewish people had all kinds of festivals. And and at these festivals, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, lambs were being slaughtered. The Passover feast, which was a week-long celebration, every single day of this celebration, lambs were being slaughtered. And the reason for these offerings was to make atonement for or to cleanse people. Now these lambs were being sacrificed, the ones that were being sacrificed needed to be spotless. They, They could not have any blemishes on them because they were associated with the temporary removal or the cleansing of sin. Now, what we should note here is that those sacrifices were made over and over and over. So they were not effectively dealing with sin. Sin was happening over and over and over. Sacrifices were being made over and over and over, but they were not ultimately dealing with the sin. In a temporary way, yes, but not permanently and ultimately. But then we read in Isaiah 53, verse 7. So uh, this has been the course of Israel throughout their history, where they're offering all of these sacrifices, lambs being a significant part of their lives, day in and day out, especially the sacrifice piece of their lives. But then an astounding thing happens in Isaiah 53. The expected Messiah is talked about as a slaughtered lamb. This is what it says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So many people in Israel were thinking, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come as a priest, or he's going to come as a king, or he's going to come as a military general, and he's going to wipe out our enemies. But in Isaiah 53, it's talking about the Messiah coming as a helpless little lamb and being sacrificed. So when we think about John's introduction of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, the Jewish people who knew the scriptures, who understood 
the story of their nation would have some idea that something big was going to happen, and it was going to involve lambs. Now, John is going to go on to qualify what this lamb was going to do, and he says, this lamb, this lamb of God, is going to take away the sin of the world. Now, I talk about, uh, from time to time, there, there are appropriate times for us to read ourselves into Scripture. Okay? Oftentimes we want to do that when maybe we're reading of King David conquering an enemy or someone doing a great feat. But this is a really good time for us to read ourselves into the story when John is talking about Jesus coming to take away the sin of the world. We are the world. We are those people who need our sins to be dealt with, to be taken away, to have our sins removed from us. Now, we live in a culture that is morally relativistic, right? So we want to, when we think about what is good, what is right, what is holy, we want to have kind of this sliding scale that's subjective. So we can look at other people and we can say, I don't do that. And we at some level can, can minimize our culpability in this whole process But the reality is, what John the Baptist is saying here is he's implicating every single person, whoever has lived and will live, that we're playing on a level playing field. There's no one who's above anyone else. We are all part of that phrase, the world, who needs their sins to be dealt with, to be taken away, to be removed in some way. So Jesus is coming to do something that we cannot do in and of ourselves, even the most impressive in our culture, cannot deal with this reality. So you think about in the Old Testament, there's priests. These priests who would offer the sacrifices, they also needed the sacrifices to be offered for themselves. And and walking into our current day, we look at politicians or athletes or celebrities or a CEO or even down to a, a janitor or a pastor. Nobody Nobody can deal with this reality that we need our sins to be taken away from us, to be cleansed, to be removed. Jesus, and only Jesus, can do this. We are a fractured people. Our sin separates us from God. And so when John is introducing Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is stating the answer to our greatest question, the resolution to our greatest problem. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 writes about this. I'm not, I just selected a number of verses, so this isn't the whole chapter. You can follow along on the screen. It says the law, so this would include the Old Testament, or the, the Ten Commandments, but also all of the other laws, the laws regarding sacrifices and, and all the laws in the Old Testament. The law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered make perfect. So these sacrifices, as we've seen, they had, to, they had to be offered over and over, and they never really dealt with the problem. Otherwise, if they did make things perfect, would they not have ceased to be offered? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, and we could even say sheep and lambs here, to take away sins. 
Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because Jesus has done what he did, we don't need to wake up every day and offer sacrifices. Trusting in Jesus is the sacrifice we offer. We fix our eyes on him. We hope in him. He is the one who deals only and ultimately with this reality that we are broken, fractured people. We are sinful people. He is the one who reconciles us to himself. So one way that we can think about this, every day when we wake up, your greatest need, if you're a Christian, your greatest need is resolved. Your greatest problem that you wake up with in the morning has been dealt with. And that isn't to delegitimize the things that you guys are walking through. But it helps us to give perspective with the things that we are battling, the things that we're walking through. How big are they really? Your biggest issue in life has been dealt with. And it's a great reminder for all of us to live in. This is why I talk about having that well-worn path to the cross. Reminding ourselves of this reality. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus brings. He has dealt with our greatest problem. And that then can help us to be given a little perspective about all the other things that we deal with day in and day out. Okay, verse 30 then. John the Baptist says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. So John is remarking that Jesus' greatness is seen and known in the fact that he existed before John the Baptist. We talked about this in our first week as we covered the first 18 verses of John. We talked about how Jesus was there at creation. He was there. So before all of us, before John the Baptist, before any of the patriarchs within the, the Jewish faith, he was there. Before Abraham, Jesus says, I am. And John the Baptist is saying, this proves Jesus is greater because he comes before me. Now, this reality is very natural to us. Well, at least to elementary kids. The fact that the one who comes before or who finishes first is greater. Right? Like, my kids will run to our front door when we get out of the car. And they will say, I'm first! Right? And, and then this is just a battle every time. And so we'll talk to them about, oh, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And we have this conversation. So now our kids, just to show how kids are born with original sin, okay? So they start using Bible verses to mock each other and to condemn each other. So if they're the last ones, then they're going to mock the one who was there first and say, ha ha, I am first. And so you can pray for us because we just need lots of help. We're actually jacking our kids up by telling them Bible verses. I don't know. 
to really hope for us. Uh, but kids do this all the time, right? So uh, I'm coaching my eldest son's basketball team. And we are in a, a league in Coon Rapids where they don't keep score, okay? Which I, I just, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Like the kids try and keep the ball away from other kids, right? They try and put the ball in the hoop. So inherent in all of this that there's competition. There's, they're trying to one-up each other. But yet, we don't keep score. And, and so yesterday, in the middle of the game, one of the kids was on our bench, and he just starts yelling. It's pretty quiet in the gym at this point. He just starts yelling, what's the score? Who's winning? And I'm supposed to be this responsible parent who says it doesn't matter. But I know that my eight-year-old, he loves math, and he's very competitive. He is counting every single basket. And so parents come up to me after the game, and they say, did you keep score? Do you know who won? And I'm like, I don't know, but ask my son, because he knows, and I'll ask him after the game. He knows the exact score, and he's keeping stats in his head. And it's no problem for him. He doesn't have to work at this. He just does it. This is so natural for us, this reality that the one who comes before us, the one who is first is greater in some way. So as unpopular as, or as abused as this idea might be, being first suggests supremacy at some level. And this is what John the Baptist is saying. So we can marvel at Jesus' greatness because he was first, but there's more here as well. Revelation 5, 5 and 6 refers to Jesus being the lion and the lamb, okay? So the lamb, when we think about a lamb, they're oftentimes pictured as meek and gentle. And, and I oftentimes think about, a, when I think about a lamb, I think they're just kind of pathetic at some level. Like, there's lots of good that they provide for us, but even uh, if you've heard the sound that a lamb makes, I'm not going to try and make it, but it is pathetic. It's ridiculous, right? This is what a lamb is. But on the other side of the coin, a lion is ferocious, a lion is powerful. They instill fear in others in the wild. And, and I think about our culture right now. There's lots of lions, right? At least lots of wannabe lions. There's, in, even think politically, right? So uh, there's people who are celebrating the fact that they have power. They think that they're the lions, and we have others who are trying to take power back. And, and they want to be the lion. Like, we want to be in the role of the lion. We want to hold the power at some level. But Jesus is both. He's the king of kings, that there is no comparison to him. He's over everything. And he is also this lowly sacrifice. And so you get the, the whole spectrum from Jesus and we marvel at Jesus because of this reality. The fact that he is the lion who strikes fear in people and he's also this lowly lamb who was killed. We marvel at the lamb because he is a lion. The lion, though he can ravage anything or anyone, has willingly become the lamb, willing to be ravaged. We marvel that Jesus is the light, which we talked about in our first sermon on John, the fact that he's the light, not simply because he drives out darkness, or in this picture he is overwhelming darkness, he's lion-like in that regard, but we marvel at him but because he also willingly walks into the darkness 
He goes into whatever it might be, as low as that, ba- that valley might be or as dark as that night might be, he walks into it and he walks with us when we walk into it as well to overcome whoever and whatever that enemy might be. We marvel at Jesus' glory because he possesses glory that is far beyond anyone or anything else. But we marvel at, all the, at, at it all the more because he humbly gave it up as an act of sacrificial love. We marvel at Jesus' love, not only because he's lion-like in the sense that he healed the sick and he fed the hungry, but especially because he loved those who sought to kill him, his enemies, me, and you. He became the land. He loved us unto death. We marvel at his power because it's immeasurable. It's lion-like. But moreover, because he doesn't misuse it. In fact, like a lamb, he comes underneath. He serves with his power so that he can build others up, so that he can rescue others. So Jesus' greatness is evident in the fact that he came before John. He was first. But it's all the more astounding that he says he is the first and the last. He is the greatest and he is the least. He is the lion, and he is the lamb. So as we walk through our days, and we see people, in, and we see ourselves seeking to grab power in some ways, we can remember that the power that, is, that someone is seeking to grab, that Jesus has so much more. He is greater than that. And then on the other side of that coin, the people who are being oppressed, being pushed down by that pursuit of power, he is under them. He is serving them. So when we see power grabs, we know that Jesus is greater and he is lesser. As we see violence, as we, as we feel anxious or fearful in and of ourselves, we can remind ourselves that Jesus is greater. He was before all of this all of this, and, and so we can trust in him. Verse 33 then says, it talks about God's spirit descending on Jesus. So Jesus was baptized, and when he came out of the water, John talks about how the spirit of God came to rest on Jesus like a dove, as though he, he could see this happening at some level. And I love this picture that we get here because it doesn't say that God's Spirit merely descends, but that it also remains. God's Spirit remains. So it remains on Jesus because Jesus is going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. And, And in this, he's going to give of himself and, and the whole idea in this is that God is giving himself to guide, to instruct, to lead. Okay, now you might look at me and you say, dude, you're, you're really tall and gangly and, and you're goofy looking. And I would totally agree. Like, I see it all the time, okay? <laughs> this is my reality. But you might say, okay, he looks goofy, but are the things that he's saying goofy? And, and honestly, this is part of the reason why we try and stick so closely to the Bible. So you can see what I'm saying is not merely my opinion. Yes, there's interpretation going on, but 
I want you to be able to see this is coming from God's word. Similarly, when he gives us his Holy Spirit, he gives it to us to instruct so that we might be able to look at life, interact with certain situations, and understand how he would want us to live and act and move. He wants to be our counselor, our helper. And this is what happens as his spirit not only descends, but then remains with Christians. And, and so in this, he's with us, right? He remains. The junk that you're walking through right now, the junk that you're going to walk through in this coming week, the burdens that you're carrying right now, he is with you. He resides in you so that he might carry those burdens for you. He might walk with you, no matter how dark the night might be that you walk through. He wants to lighten your load. And the reality is, you guys see what's going on in our country right now. You see the anger, you see the conflict, you probably feel tremors of uncertainty at some level. In the days ahead, you think about this fact that God not only descends on those who trust in him, but he remains. This is intended to sturdy us, to give us sturdiness no matter what we might see, what we might experience. God's spirit lives in us so that we might be sturdy, not so that we might look impressive, but so that in the midst of our weakness, we can say we have sturdiness. You see the contrast of the lion and the lamb. In the midst of our weakness, others can still see sturdiness. And in that, we can point people to Jesus. This is what he does in us. He sturdies us. He anchors us in the midst of any storm that we will walk through. And then verse 31 and 33, John the Baptist says this, phrase twice. He says, I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus. But then in verse 34, he says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In this, we, we get just this little glimpse of salvation. The way by which we are saved is not by rigorous discipline. The way by which we are saved is God revealing himself to us. He shows us. He woos us, his glory and his goodness. And even as we're talking this morning about the lion and the lamb, he wants us to see him for who he really is. Because here's the reality. Darkness is going to come to us. It's going to obscure our ability to see Jesus clearly, to see reality clearly at some level, and it's even going to hamper our willingness to believe at times. We're going to be in those spots where we're going to say, I'm struggling to know Jesus, to see Jesus. And honestly, this is why we need the church. This is why we need to be, have, or have closeness of relationship with other Christians, to have proximity in life with others. Because we all need to repeatedly see and hear the gospel, and not just from me, from each other, to see how the gospel is working itself out in your heart, 
Because I'm one person. I can't spend time with all of you all the time. We need to see this and hear this from each other. When we're on the mountaintop, when we're in the lowest of valleys, we need to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We need to see the gospel modeled. We need to see people be hospitable, be generous, sacrifice of their time. Even a couple families opening their houses up this coming week. Uh, tonight for the Super Bowl party, right? Like there could be 35 kids in this house. You could trash their house, right? It won't happen. But some stuff could happen, right? But, but for these people to open up their houses and say, come and dine and enjoy and rub shoulders with us. Give of what they have. This is the embodiment of the gospel. This is what Jesus has done to us. He welcomes us. He shares with us. He gives grace. And that's what's happening in these parties. This is what happens, what is intended to happen when we gather with each other here on a Sunday morning and throughout the weeks as well. Now some of us, we, and all of us at some time, we have this tendency to think, well, I can get that elsewhere. I can get that from other people at some level. The church is Jesus' instrument to advance the gospel. This is his instrument. So for us to say, I can get that elsewhere, I can do this another way, is to say at some level, well, I'll build my own church. I'll do it my way at some level. So knowing this reality that Jesus wants what's best for us more than what we, more than what we want, more than we want it for ourselves. He wants what's best for us. He knows us better than ourselves. He knows what we need. And, and the reality is some of you might say, I don't need that, but someone else might need you. And so you might be in a really good spot right now, but the day's coming. But for where you're at now, the reality is there's others who need to hear the gospel, who need to see the gospel modeled and embodied so that they might see Jesus more clearly. And in all of this, so we're talking very internally here, but in all of this, as others see and hear of Jesus through us, through our church, as they're invited to our parties, as they darken the doors of our houses, as we spend time with them at establishments, they'll be drawn to him. Because the gospel of grace draws people. At times, it is a stumbling block as well. But it also draws people. And we'll be able to celebrate stories, more stories of people saying, I myself did not know him, but now I have seen and I have heard of Jesus. He is God. He is my God. And they treasure Jesus with all of their lives. So in all of this, in these six short verses, and, and for our gospel application, we're meant to see Jesus for who he is, to marvel at him, to see him as both a lion and a lamb, that he's able to destroy millions with one word, but he's willing to be savagely, brutally murdered. 
And, and even as this happened, as he was dying, it was inciting insane rage and excitement for the apparent victors. And yet, what Jesus was accomplishing in those moments was something that would bring peace to many people throughout history. And Jesus was offered as a sacrifice, a spotless, perfect sacrifice. He was this helpless lamb who now brings immeasurable help and hope to a lost and broken world. And so for us today, part of our marveling happens in the form of remembering. Remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. And, and thinking about this, I, I oftentimes will, will use this phrase that it's a time of sober celebration. It's sober because you and I are the ones who put Jesus on the cross. But it's celebratory because he went there. He did that for us. He did the unthinkable. He loved in the face of hate. He forgave when wrath was appropriate. The lamb-like lion rescued the hopeless, despicable sinner. He's both fierce and tender. And so we want to take some moments to remember this lion and lamb, to remember who he is and what he's done, to remember how he is both king and servant, how he is sovereign over everything and yet in the midst of it all as well. And so we're going to take some moments here to observe the Lord's Supper, to remember what Jesus has done. And so the bread and the cup signify Jesus' body and his blood. The body and blood of the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, Jesus, who was our perfect sacrifice. So if you're a Christian, you're invited to observe, uh, meaning uh, if you're a Christian, you've put your trust in Jesus, you trust him for the forgiveness of sins. We want to invite you to uh, observe this and participate. And if, if you're not a Christian, uh, there's no shame in that. We're not going to judge you this morning, but this is an invitation for you to believe, to understand that what Jesus did on the cross was for your sins. It was to reconcile you to himself, to Jesus. And so we've talked about this a number of times um, in months past, how in the first century, this whole ordeal was a communal event. It was something that people did together. And many of us come from contexts where this celebration is a very individualistic thing. And so we take it, we observe it individualistically, and I'm not going to judge you on that, but what I do want to do is to keep inviting you in to the fact that this is the body of Christ. This is intended to be a communal event, to be shared with one another. The sobering part that we can share the grief, the sorrow 
with one another. It can be spread out in some way. And then the celebratory part that the celebration can be multiplied. It's shared with others and it's multiplied in some sense. And so I want to invite you guys into thinking about what does it mean for this to be a communal event? How do we celebrate this together? So if you're here with someone this morning, you've got friends, you want to pray with them, you want them to pray for you or whatever, I invite you guys to do it. I'm going to be off on the side if you guys want me to pray with you. And it can be something specific. It can be just general. I'd love to do that with you. And so I want to invite you guys into seeing this as a communal event. At the same time, let me be really clear, like, this is not to judge anyone. If, if you do this um, on your own, no one's going to have like the red pen and, and putting the check mark next to your name. Like that's not what we're about. But I want to keep inviting you guys into this, into the body of Christ, into Jesus' church. That this, sh- this would be something that we share together. So in a couple minutes, the band's going to come up. They're going to play. They'll play a few songs. And during those songs, you can come up at any time and, and celebrate um, what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to ask you guys now to stand with me. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a moment to, or some moments to observe this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity.